all of our campuses. We are glad that all of you are here. Uh, we are in the midst of a, a five-week teaching series on the subject of worship, how we can grow in our experience of worship. Now, you may be wondering, what's the big deal about worship? I mean, why five weeks studying this theme? Well, here's the reason. From God's perspective, worship is the most important and powerful activity in which we can engage. Seriously, I mean, worship is the most important activity in which we can engage. When God gave his people the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, the first and foundational one had to do with worship. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first one. It was like God, it was as if God was saying, hey, I want you to get this right. You know, before we talk about any of these other issues, I want you to understand that this worship thing is the most important thing of all. So then in the New Testament, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? It's no surprise that, that he answered that question by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's worship. To worship is to give love and adoration to God. And, and again, we see it from God's perspective. This is the most important thing we can do. So as we saw last week, I mean, genuine worship transforms us into the image of Jesus. It is that powerful. It is that significant. It, it is not something we want to miss out on. It is not something we want to ignore or dismiss. If there is anything in the spiritual life that we want to get right, that we want to experience the fullness of, it would be worship, which raises the obvious question, how are we doing in worship? What is our experience of this important activity? For many of us, if we're honest, we would have to admit that our worship experience is not that life-giving. In fact, it may be kind of boring. We feel distracted in worship or unengaged, or maybe we don't really understand what we're supposed to be doing when we worship. The tragedy is many Christians go for years missing out on this, the, the incredible power of worship. We, you know, we end up treating worship sort of like cough syrup, right? Something we have to swallow, but we don't really like it that much. Um, but God invites us to experience real worship, that which is life-giving and, and transformative. Real worship opens our hearts to experience the fullness of God's joy and his peace. I mean, it's that powerful. So in this series, we are talking about how we can grow in our experience of worship. And today I want us to focus on this question of what is real worship? How do we know whether or not we're engaging in authentic worship? In order to answer that question, I want us to look at a passage of scripture in John chapter 4 where Jesus addresses the topic of worship. He's in the midst of a spiritual conversation with a Samaritan woman and the topic of worship comes up. So let's pick this up in John 4 verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
This is God's word. This is really a fascinating passage that speaks volumes to us about worship, about what real worship is. Now, before we talk about what worship is, I want us to start out by talking about what worship is not. In order to understand what genuine worship is, we've got to understand what worship is not, and and that's revealed in this passage. Here's Jesus' bottom line. Worship is not a religious ritual. It is not a religious ritual. This is where the human heart always tends to go when it comes to the issue of worship. We tend to try and define worship in terms of external factors. So, for instance, this woman in this passage, she's a Samaritan. From the Jews' perspective, Samaritans were theological half-breeds. They only embraced the first five books of the Old Testament. So they had some different views about things, including worship. And so this woman says to Jesus, verse 19, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, I've actually visited this area, excuse me, in Israel. The mountains there are not Colorado-type mountains, but they're certainly more than a hill. And one particular mountain there is called Mount Gerizim. And it was on that mountain upon which the Samaritans worshipped. And so this woman, as she's there at Jacob's well, she points to Mount Gerizim and she says, Our ancestors worship on that mountain, but you Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which is the right one? You see, her idea of worship was tied to a particular location. Worship was primarily an external issue for her. It was all about the particular space, the particular location. And this is why many people go on these spiritual pilgrimages, you know, to holy sites, hoping they can get closer to God by being in a particular location. Now, I'm not saying that buildings don't matter. Church buildings can be very conducive to worship, and that's great. But what can happen is that we begin to think that we can only truly worship God in a particular location. This turns worship into a religious ritual. The focus becomes externals. Now, this tendency goes way beyond location, We can turn all sorts of things into external rituals where we can only worship if there's a worship band or we can only worship if there's a pipe organ or we can only worship if so-and-so is leading worship or if we're doing really cool songs. See, suddenly and often unintentionally, we have made these external factors essential for our worship. I can only worship God if we sing. You fill in the blank. (laughs) I'm not saying any of these things are wrong, but what what we've got to understand is that these things do not define worship. They are in reality preferences. This is so important to understand. All of us have things we prefer as it relates to worship, and that's okay. It's okay to have preferences, to have songs that we prefer, to have music styles we prefer, and places that we prefer to worship. That that is all okay, but we always need to remember that our preferences do not define what real worship looks like. Our preferences are not biblical mandates. But when we turn them into mandates, they become religious rituals. 
external factors that define worship. And this always leads to conflict. I mean, this is one of the reasons why worship tends to be a lightning rod for conflict in the church. It's been this way for centuries. It's because everyone has preferences, often strong preferences. And our preferences can easily become our focus so that we can only worship if our preferences, if our desires are being met. Now, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus makes it clear that when we make worship about a particular location or about these other external factors, we miss what worship is really about. We miss the point. This was one of his primary beefs with the Pharisees, right? Pharisees were always trying to make worship about external things. You got to pray in public, you know, and sit on the front row and, and all of those things, right? But look at what Jesus says to them, Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9. <clears throat> you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Wow, I mean, talk about a significant rebuke. And it has to do with worship. Jesus says to these religious leaders, these are the guys everyone thought they were really, you know, they had it all together in the religious sense. The religious leaders, Jesus says to them, your worship is in vain. It is empty. It's vacuous. Why? He says, because you're you're so so focused on external factors. Look again at what he says in verse 8. In fact, why don't you read this out loud with me? At all of our campuses here, let's read this out loud. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I mean, this verse wrecks me and challenges me. Can any of us here think of times when we're, we've been in a worship service and with everyone else, we're singing an entire song, maybe multiple songs, and yet the whole time we're thinking about something at work or we're thinking about where we're going to go to lunch or dinner or we're wondering about that person sitting two rows in front of us, if they're dating anyone or whatever. And I hate to admit how often this happens to me. I'm honoring God with my lips, singing the words, but my heart is far from him. Jesus makes it very clear. Genuine worship is not just singing some songs. It's not just singing the right words. We we can be singing the most amazing, God-honoring words, but if our mind is focused on the first T, or is at Sentara, or at work, we're not worshiping. Our worship is in vain. It is empty. It's, It's external. It's superficial. We're just going through the motions. And that's what makes this so dangerous. We, you know, we can look to others like we're fully engaged in worship when in reality we're not. It looks like we are, but we're not. God knows we're not. 
right? We may be raising our hands and, and looking like we're fully engaged in worship, but in reality, we're thinking about whether anyone notices us raising our hands. <clears throat> or we may be singing with all of our energy and with these beautiful harmonies, but if we're thinking about how awesome our voice sounds or how awesome our harmonies sound, we may be impressing other people sitting around us, but we're not impressing God. We're not engaging in genuine, life-changing, Christ-honoring worship. Why? Because our worship is all about externals rather than about our hearts. Worship that doesn't come from the heart is in vain. It's empty. It's nothing more than religious ritual. Okay, so we're clear on what worship is not. Genuine worship is not a religious ritual where external factors, no matter how good they are, where external factors become requirements or where we're going through the motions but our hearts are not engaged. That's not worship, no matter how good it looks. So what is genuine worship? How do we know if we're engaging in genuine worship? Well, Jesus answers this question for us here in John 4 with this extremely helpful definition of worship. Look again at, at what he says here, verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Okay, so whereas in the Old Testament, worship was focused on a particular location, the tabernacle and the temple, now Jesus is saying worship is not about a location. Genuine worship is not about external factors. No, it is rooted in two very significant and integrated internal factors. Jesus says that we are to worship in the spirit and in truth. So let's start with truth. Genuine worship is to be rooted in the truth of who God is. Worship involves focusing on and declaring the incredible truth of who God is. This is, this is where the Bible becomes such an important resource for us in experiencing genuine worship. The Bible reveals to us what God is like. Now, I know a lot of people in our society give little credence to the Bible. I mean, there are even some churches that believe the Bible is flawed and not that helpful. But, but think for a moment. Think of where we would be if we had no Bible, and yet we gathered together to worship God. We would have no way of knowing what God is like. So someone might say, I think God is blue. And someone else might say, I think God is like a thunderstorm. You know, he's not always here, but when he comes, we notice. And then someone else might say, you know, I think God is loving, but I don't really think he's holy. I mean, do you, do you see the problem with this? Everyone is creating God in their own image. What they think or what they feel he should be like. What, what happens is we're projecting our ideas onto him. 
So then when you put all that together, you end up with no God at all, right? When you put all those ideas together, you, you don't end up with a God at all. You end up with this, this conglomeration of our ideas. And many of them are, would be contradictory. I think God is blue. No, I think he's more like the color red. I think God is loving but not holy. Well, I think God is holy and not loving. I mean, that doesn't work. Without some revelation of truth that is from beyond us, that is beyond our opinions and our ideas and feelings, without that, genuine worship cannot happen. It cannot happen. We need to know the truth about who God is in order to worship him. And the Bible gives us that truth. From the scriptures, from the Bible, we know that God is loving and holy, right? From the Bible, we know God is merciful and just. From the Bible, we know God reveals himself in the person of Jesus. We know that. And we know that from the Bible, we know that he, 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 he is way beyond our comprehension. God is way beyond our comprehension. Which is exactly why we couldn't think him up in a way that would even be close to how glorious he is. In, in order to truly worship, we must know the truth about who God is. We must worship him in truth. We want our worship to be grounded in the truths of Scripture. Now, this is why we are very careful about the songs that we choose to sing in our worship services. We want to make sure that they accurately reflect what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. Some of the best worship songs take phrases and thoughts directly out of Scripture, which is awesome. I mean, Scripture, the Bible is filled with worship songs to God, especially in the Psalms, 150 of them in the Psalms. I mean, what an incredible resource God has given us in the Bible, in, in his word, to grow in worship. So, so worship songs become a tool for us to express worship to God in truth. They are not, they're not the only way to worship, but they can be a very helpful vehicle for us to grow in worship. In fact, let me, let me use an analogy to help make this point, why songs are important. Um, let, here's, here's an analogy. When you go to the store, say you go to the store to pick out a greeting card, you have two options, right? You can either pick out a card that's, that's blank on the inside, and you have to write everything, or you can pick out a card that has writing, Right? Writing that, that expresses what you want to express, but you just didn't know how to word it, word it that way. Right? You know, is it writing that helps you express your heart. So, which do you most often choose? I know what I go for, you know, the one with writing. We most often choose that. Why is that? It's because we often need help in expressing the truth that we feel about this person. We feel this, but we need help in expressing that truth. You see, effective worship songs and hymns are, like, are just like that. They're just like a greeting card with words. They, they give us words, biblically rooted language, that we can use 
to express to God worship, worship that is rooted in truth. They help us. They help us articulate that. And so when we sing, we are together declaring the truth of who God is, which is an amazing thing. And the songs help us grow in that. They help us express those truths. I recently read a fascinating article um, about one of the early church fathers, a guy named Athanasius, who lived in the fourth century. In a letter to a friend of his, he was talking about worship and singing in particular. And he, he, uh, he described worship through singing in a way that I had never heard described before. He wrote that singing is a spiritual discipline. Singing is a spiritual discipline. Now, what do we mean by spiritual discipline? A spiritual discipline is a practice that helps us grow in our faith, right? It could be prayer or fasting or whatever. These spiritual disciplines, they help us grow in our faith. These are practices that help us become more like Christ. Well, Athanasius believed that singing psalms was exactly that. It was a, it was a spiritual discipline. It, it, it was a means, it's a means of growing our faith. And here's why he believed this. This was so interesting to me. Most of the time, we think of worship singing as expression, right? We're expressing praise, which it is. But Athanasius also believed that singing was about impression. Not just expression, impression. In worship singing, the truth of the Psalms is drawn into the depths of our being. See, so, so worshiping through song is not just about us expressing praise to God. It is also about these truths being impressed upon us in our, in our hearts. And music does that in an incredibly powerful way. Singing helps these truths about who God is. Singing helps those truths become a deeper reality in our own hearts. Which leads us into the second aspect of worship that Jesus highlights, and that is worshiping in the spirit. Or this could also be translated worshiping in spirit, small s. Translators have to make a decision when they come to this passage, they have to make a decision about which it is, because we're not sure. Is it a big S, talking about the Holy Spirit? Is it a little s, talking about our spirit? Now, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because both of them, in essence, are communicating a similar idea. And here's why. We are, we are not just physical beings. We're not. We have a spirit. We have, we have a spirit. And, and, and when we place our trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in us, in our inner being. And so there's this interaction between our spirit and God's spirit. So whether it's a capital S or a small s, the meaning in this passage really ends up being the same. And here it is. Genuine worship is not simply a cognitive exercise where our minds engage truth. Truth is important, as we've already seen. But genuine worship, then, as Athanasius was telling us, genuine worship then takes that truth and embraces it in our hearts, into our spirit. So genuine worship is an expression of our hearts. So as I said earlier, worship is often a lightning rod in the church, right? It's a, it's a lightning rod in the church as a whole. And when you listen to the criticisms being offered, 
they almost always land in one of these two camps. There is the truth camp, which says of the other, <clears throat> excuse me, those worship, those worship choruses are also touchy-feely, you know? They're also emotional, and they repeat the choruses over and over. It's all just sappy sentimentality and emotional manipulation. I just don't get it. I don't connect with that. It bores me. <coughs> now, that's the truth camp. The spirit camp, spirit camp, also has their criticism of those people. And they say, you know, that their worship is so heady. You know, it, it's so much about information. There's no emotion. It doesn't engage my heart. You know, people are just singing about God without letting those realities really touch their hearts. It bores me. Almost every worship controversy, controversy boils down to the struggle, the head or the heart, <laughs> right? It's too intellectual. It's too emotional. Now, here's where Jesus' description of worship is so brilliant, <laughs> because Jesus says it's not one or the other. It's not one pitted against the other. It's both. Genuine worship involves the head and the heart, spirit and truth. And if you're only focused on one of these, you are missing out on genuine worship, so, the, the, the reality is there's something here for all of us. There's something here to challenge all of us. Jesus is challenging all of us to grow in worship. So, what does this mean practically speaking? Well, well let's start with the truth, people. For those of you, those of us here who tend to lean toward the truth side, we love declaring the truths of who God is. We love the traditional hymns and, that are so doctrinally sound and rich and with meaning and all that. If you lean toward the truth side, I believe what God may be saying to you is this. Does your worship touch your heart? Does it touch your heart? Are you allowing the truth of who God is to touch your spirit, including your emotions? to bring joy, to bring tears? Does your worship ever touch your heart? I at times will have people come up to me after a worship service and they'll say to me in a somewhat embarrassed tone, I don't understand why I cry so much at this church. <laughs> and, and you know, they say it like something's wrong with them. And I love to tell them there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. God is using the worship to touch your heart to touch in places where they, you need his love, you need his peace. It's a good thing. So again, let me just, let me just ask, does, does worship regularly touch your heart in some way? Not always, I'm not talking about always having some emotional experience, but does it regularly happen? Consistently, frequently, is there an emotional response of, of, of greater joy or peace when you worship? If not, I believe God would want you to grow in that, to open your heart more to the truth of who he is. Now, one of the ways to let the words of a song touch our heart is to repeat the words. It's to repeat the words, to allow them to sink more deeply into our soul. So it's not about quantity of verses 
It's about quality. It's about letting, letting particular words sink more deeply into our soul. And this is why we often repeat choruses. This is why we do it. Our goal is not emotional manipulation. Our goal is to allow the truth of these incredible words to more deeply touch our hearts. So for those of you who tend to be on the truth side, I want to encourage you to give space to let the words of songs touch your heart. Rather than getting frustrated when a chorus is repeated again, instead, see it as an opportunity to open your heart more fully to the wonder of who God is. Okay, that's those on the true side. Now, for those on the spirit side, who love allowing the words of songs to touch our hearts, we too can find challenge in Jesus' words. There, there is a danger that our worship can become too focused on emotions and that we measure whether or not genuine worship has happened based on how we feel. And sometimes that feeling is genuine. But sometimes, you know what? It's related to the dynamics in the room how loud the music is, right? Or how full the room is with people. When it's more full, it just feels more anointed, right? It just does. Um, so the question is, would, would we have the same emotional response if there was a harmonica player on stage playing Amazing Grace? See, what, what, what we are measuring as genuine worship because it really touched our hearts may be as much about external factors that we can become too dependent upon. So, so if we lean toward the spirit side, we need to remember that worship is to be grounded in truth, that it's not measured um, simply by whether our emotions are stirred. Sometimes our, our emotions won't be stirred, but we can still engage in worship, declaring the truth of who God is. I mean, genuine worship can happen no matter what is happening on stage if we're focused on the truth of who God is. Again, the point is not pitting one against the other. You either, you gotta choose right now. You either worship in spirit or truth. That, that's not the point. That's not what Jesus is saying. The point is that genuine worship involves both. It includes both. It is to engage our minds in the truth of who God is, and it is to engage our hearts in those realities. See, genuine worship is both a cognitive and an emotional experience. Are you experiencing the and of worship? Rather than criticizing the other side, why not celebrate and embrace both? We can learn from each other. We need each other. I mean, imagine the impact as we all grow in our worshiping in spirit and truth. You know, one of the reasons that we structure our services the way we do is to try to encourage a both-and response. In, in many churches, the message or the sermon, whatever you call it, comes at the end of the service, right? So you have all the worship up front and then the message, then maybe it's one song or whatever, but it's, it's kind of dismissed after the message. And I understand that. It's not right or wrong, and that's how we did it for the first few years I was here. But then a number of years, about 15 years ago, um, during a teaching series on worship, I was doing a teaching series on worship, 
I thought, you know, it'd be cool. Why don't we just switch these? Since I'm teaching on worship anyway, why don't we just switch the order? So I'll, I'll do the teaching earlier in the service, and then most of our worship will come after. And so we decided to do that during this series on worship. I'll never forget the first Sunday we did that. I mean, it was electric. It was unbelievable. The response was incredible. And in that moment, I realized how powerful it can be to hear, to hear the word, i.e. truth, and then respond to that truth in worship where we have time, we have room to open our hearts to the truth that we just heard. We have time to respond, right? Spirit and truth. And this is why we still do that. It's like, I'm not going back after what we just experienced. I'm not going back to the other. The bulk of our singing time comes after the message because we want to encourage a worship that is rooted in both spirit and truth. So for example, let's say you come into church with a, with a heaviness of failure. Maybe you gave into some sin the night before. Maybe you spoke harshly to someone or whatever, and you're feeling like a failure. So in the teaching from God's word, you hear about God's forgiveness, and you hear about God's mercy, which is awesome. And those are true, awesome. And then the worship songs start after the message. Well, now you have the opportunity to open your heart more fully to the wonder of God's mercy. You have the opportunity to open your heart more fully to the wonder of God's grace, that he loves you, that he forgives you. You see, worship enables this truth to go from our head to our heart, into our experience. It's no wonder that worshiping in spirit and truth is such a transformational activity. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 4, these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. I don't know of anywhere else in Scripture, there may be, but I don't know of anywhere else in Scripture where it talks about God seeking anything except here. God seeks worshipers. These kinds of worshipers. He longs for worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. Are we willing to be that kind of worshiper? Are we willing to be that kind of a church filled with worshipers like that? I hope so. I want to be that. I'm going to ask the campus pastors at their respective campuses to come forward as they lead their congregations in prayer. And let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, this amazing thing called worship. I don't think we have even scratched the surface in terms of how incredible worship is, how life-changing and transformative it can be. But you're inviting us to wade more fully into the wonder of genuine worship. So thank you for that. Thank you for teaching us from your word about what worship is not and we confess that sometimes we make it into a ritual that we can only worship if so and so is leading we can only worship to this kind of music we can only worship all these, these preferences we have Lord forgive us for making sometimes making our worship defining worship by those preferences and those rituals even if they're good things 
forgive us for doing that and forgetting what worship is really about. That genuine worship is worshiping you in truth and in spirit, in the truth of who you are. And we thank you for the incredible musicians over the centuries who have produced music that helps us give words to worship, helps us give words to express the truth about who you are. Thank you for that. And so we want to be people who worship in truth, and we also want to be people who worship in spirit, who worship in such a way that these truths that we're expressing also become truths that impress in our hearts, where we are changed, we are impacted, we are, our hearts are touched by the truth of who you are. And so we want to grow in worship. And we acknowledge it's ultimately not about us anyway. It's really about you. But when we're worshiping you and our lives are aligned with you, our lives go a whole lot better. <laughs> so we, we pray that you would teach us and you would continue to invite us and help us learn how to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we want to do that right now. We want to just practice. We want to respond to your word. We want to practice worshiping. So let, let's do that. Why don't we stand? The worship team is going to lead us in a time of response. What an awesome privilege we have to worship the Lord. We have intercessors available to my right and left around the room that we're in red lanyards. If you have a prayer need, you can slip out and go to them. They'd love to pray with you. But otherwise, let's just make the Lord our focus. Let's delight in him not thinking about anything we're going to be doing later tonight. Let's just, let's just give him our hearts and our minds this evening. We love you. Set us free to worship in spirit and truth, God. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Hey.